My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. The Underground. This week, The Underground. The Underground. The Underground. What do you think of it, Gray? Uh, it was a lot. I just, I got so uh, distracted by some of the wildly inappropriate discussions of mental health and yeah, yeah. stuff that, that I was in there. didn't enjoy it as much as I think I otherwise would have, um, which reminds me... We have a content warning for this week. In this episode, we're going to discuss suicide and mental health, drug use, and claustrophobia, probably, including references to the highly inappropriate terms that this book uses. Please use caution in listening if you need to, and see the episode notes for resources. So you want to tell us what happened today? Sure. Let's see if I can get all of this in. (laughs) All right. So there's a new Planet Hollywood opening in town, and lots of the team's favorite celebrities are going to be there. They convince Jake they should attend in Birdmore to check it out. And as they're there, Rachel sees a man throw a chair out of the window of a skyscraper and prepare to jump. In her eagle morph, and with the help of the other animorphs, she catches him, and they kind of glide him into a water landing. And then Rachel saves him from drowning in the river. Later, Rachel learns the man has been sent to an institution because his family thinks he's insane. He keeps talking about an alien living in his brain. So the animorphs sneak into the asylum to visit him, and they learn that the Yerks, after the Kendrona was briefly destroyed, figured out that instant maple ginger oatmeal will keep a Yerk alive without the Kendrona rays, but at a cost. They become insane and lose control, allowing their hosts to peek through sometimes. They figure out that they can't get into the Yerk pool through any of the normal pathways because the Yerks have finally figured out that sometimes they get into the Yerk pool and have created a sort of bioweapon thing that will zap them if they try to go through those entrances. So the animals come up with this absolutely bonkers plan to break into the Yerk pool and fill it with oatmeal. Um, So they morph into moles and then they dig down into the underground pool, which takes forever and is very boring. And when they break through, they actually are in a bat cave that's kind of next to the yerk pool. So then they morph into bats and they get into the yerk pool, but then find out that there are these hunter robot things looking for any animals. Because again, the yerks have finally figured out that the uh, Andalite bandits may try and sneak into the yerk pool. Axe, Jake, and Tobias get captured. Rachel morphs out of the bat and into an ant and finds like a storage area gets a Dracon beam, which is Rachel's dream. And then she, Marco, and Cassie go to rescue Axe, Jake, and Tobias. There is a huge fight scene. Eventually, Visser 3 shows up, and they face him down by threatening to blow up a barrel of instant maple and ginger oatmeal in the Yerk Pool. They dump Visser 3 into the Yerk Pool, so he will also be affected by the oatmeal. And they all manage to escape, in the process of which they blow through the roof of the Yerk Pool and then tunnel their way out, and then they escape and live to fight another day. What does Rachel do at the end? What does Rachel do at the end? Oh, she uh, she sets the guy free who was in the Oh, right. Yes. So she, as a, as a bear, she goes and <laughs> finds the guy that she saved at the beginning and uh, frees him from the institution in which he lives, which does not seem like the best plan, but fine. Yeah, it's a little poorly thought through, but yeah. Yeah, there's a lot in this book that happens. Much of it bad. I so 
mental health stuff aside, which the way they deal with that is, you know, maybe not the best. Uh, yeah, we'll get there. I did really enjoy this book. I feel like it makes a nice set with 15 and 16. Like it felt like in all of these books, the characters are really dealing with like fear and with their role in the group and um, with this trauma that's starting to accumulate. And the not, none of these books kind of resolve. They just are like, it's getting worse is mm-hmm. kind of the takeaway. And after, I mean, 13 was wonderful. And like kind of the fluffiness of 12 and 14, it's... I don't know if good is the right word, but, like, it it feels like we're going somewhere weighty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like this was a continuation of that. And there are a lot of parts of it that I enjoyed and found entertaining. So, overall, I enjoyed it. The mental health stuff is not great. Ted, what did you think? I like Jenny's take that it's, it's directionally, it's a new thing for the series, or, like, they're building to something. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about how, kind of, Rachel fits into that dynamic because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting like it doesn't feel like it's weighing on her personally as much mm-hmm. like we see her really think about how it, like Jake and Cassie and other people are affected mm-hmm. but in this book it didn't feel like it was weighing on her as much yeah really yeah oh that's not the impression I got at all not that she's not affected by it but that her take on the battle is so action-oriented mm-hmm. that she's not true. taking that time to kind of have the self-reflection that Jake has had mm-hmm. in the last book um, that we saw Tobias having. That Marco definitely has where they're really, they really understand how all of these things are affecting them. Mm-hmm. I think Rachel has that a little bit, but certainly not to the same extent. At least I didn't see she it. She might be a little less self-reflective, but I don't know. I feel like we see a lot in this book. Like, I mean, we didn't see it at all in 12 it sort of had a different flavor in Seven because it was about this decision to leave or not. Um, but this this book feels like the first real glimpse into, like, wow, she's really struggling with this in, like, an ongoing way, not just because of this, like, crisis of having a decision to make. Hmm. Maybe. I wonder, I, I feel like it's maybe more like Eleven where, you know, Jake was struggling with it, but then it didn't necessarily matter. Like, the stakes were pretty low. Mm-hmm. I feel like here, the narrative doesn't necessarily support that, like, Rachel's making mistakes. She's sort of a little bit more self-aware that her hmm. gung-ho attitude is a front, but yeah. it is, it's also what saves the day in the end in, yeah, like, a I pretty say, unproblematic way. I wouldn't like, say it's, like, it's that she's making mistakes. I would say that it's she's aware that it's very hard on her hard for her. I feel like I, I think I felt that more in her last book. Really? Than I did in this one. I mean, um, she talks so many times in this book about like being afraid and how difficult it is to let herself be afraid. Like she has this dream about the yerk pool, like this nightmare and wakes up in the middle of the night and she says, the yerk pool, we were going back to the yerk pool and I, Rachel, mighty Xena, fearless, pulled the covers up over my head and shook. Mm-hmm. Right. And then yeah. every moment that they're digging as moles, she's so afraid and she can't let herself admit it. Mm-hmm. She talks about how like that panic, that terror, terror of suffocating in a dark place kept rearing up. I could push it down. I could reason with myself. But that fear of suffocation was too strong. I was buried alive. Correction. I was burying myself alive. And she never says that to anyone. Mm-hmm. And she she's very she is very self-aware about that. Like the fact that she can't say that. Mm-hmm. Like, at some point, Rachel's saying, like, they need a volunteer to, like, go in through, like, a rock crevice. And, and Marco points out how dangerous it is. And, you know, Rachel thinks he was right. I had to force myself to stay very still and not start running. If I started running, I'd never stop. If you're scared, I'll go in, I said. I'm scared, Marco confirmed. Help yourself. 
And she says, there must be something kind of liberating just being able to say, I'm scared, like it's no big deal. I can't do that. I don't know why. I just can't. And you just kind of see that weighing on her like more and more this whole mission where she's just terrified of it and just can't admit it or like can't look like she's weak Mm -hmm. or afraid. And knows that if she started to look like that, she just would never kind of, she's afraid she'd never be able to put up the front again. And then she'd never be able to take action again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. The central portion where they're digging in is very clearly something that Rachel struggles with. But I think because the last thing we see is this big battle sequence Mm -hmm. where it's back to being Rachel the grizzly bear, Rachel the elephant in this case, Mm -hmm. that she gets back into her comfort zone a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Just being very action-oriented and not having to think about not having to think about what she's learned about herself, that she's like maybe a little claustrophobic, that she's particularly afraid of the yerk pool. Mm-hmm. She morphs an ant, which she hates. Um, mm-hmm. It's her least favorite morph, and she does it anyway. And I think having something to fight against, as we've talked about before, is really where Rachel shines. Yeah. So I, I think that um, not that having that fight at the end in any way diminishes your point, which I think is a good one, yeah. that she does have these moments of fear that she's recognizing um, more and more. But I think it, it gave me a sense of now that she's in a place that she feels more confident, she's kind of okay. And I think it's almost like she does kind of conquer her fear in the book as much as it's weighing on her. She thinks before... I forget where, but during the mole section, she's like, you know what? I'm not going to let fear dictate what I do. Maybe that's, maybe I'm a fool, but that's my decision. And then at the end, the way that they get out is she's like, oh, I have this clever plan. I'm going to bury myself alive. And that ends up saving the day. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like in the end, she faces her fear and she wins. Mm -hmm. Right. And there isn't the same kind of like, oh, well, you know, everything went back to normal for now. Or, like, she doesn't have the kind of self-awareness to to realize the fight isn't over and she's going to be facing these same fears again. Mm -hmm. And so that seems very Rachel, but it also, I think maybe that's why it didn't feel as weighty to me. That makes sense. I think, yeah, unlike Jake, who does seem to be more aware that, like, crap, this is really weighing on me and is going to be bad... Rachel maybe maybe does think she has conquered it and maybe doesn't recognize like the very obvious ways in which like no this is really difficult for her and really like damaging mm-hmm. just because she's l- less reflective the button at the end where she frees George Edelman from the mental institution is not about fear it's about like empathy and responsibility right mm, which is like yeah. a slightly different it's like a slightly different theme which mm. I don't know we can we can get into later yeah, that's that's also running through this. Yeah, like I, I said, it, probably in the last couple of books, like I love how they aren't just dealing with like, this is my one issue for the book. It's fear. And yeah. it's like, okay, she's dealing with fear. She's dealing with like a complicated relationship with like saving people and the responsibility that comes with that. She's dealing with rage and how and that's also connected to the fear. And yeah, it's a lot of things. I also, now that you say that, and maybe maybe we should cut this, I have trouble with this book because of future events in a mm-hmm. way that hasn't been a problem for me in a lot of the things that we've recorded. 
But that's really interesting, of, and I really want to know what you mean. Yeah, it, it, it's more <laughs> just sort of like thematically the stuff that the characters deal with, and like I'm probably thinking of even future Rachel books, and maybe getting the order of certain events in my head. I'm just kind of like, oh, it's weird that Rachel doesn't feel the way about a certain thing that I think she feels later. You know, huh. so I don't know why my expectations are set the way they are. Interesting. I do think that this book gives the impression that, like, these issues are not going away. They're not conquered, even if she was able to move past them for the moment. I don't think it's like Tobias's fear of water, where he's like, oh, this isn't so bad, you know. I think it's more like she's able to do some stuff she feels good at and get to a good and confident place. But, I mean, there's there's so much about her role in the group. Like, Jake, like Marco, is, like, penning her in. Like, she has to be the one to say, let's do it. And that's so hard. Like, that can yeah. be so hard for her. I think that's not going to go away. I think it's going right. to get worse. And, and I think it's, like, Rachel... I mean, I also think that that's there in the book. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just who Rachel is that she doesn't stop to reflect about it or that she doesn't see the signs that are there. Because one of the things that jumped yeah. out to me is when... We should get into this conversation more in detail, but she sort of looks to Cassie to kind of, like make a moral argument that oh, she yeah. can be in opposition to and Cassie <laughs> just kind of shrugs and Rachel mm-hmm. thinks like wait a second I expect Cassie to be kind of like sensible or moral or whatever and I'm supposed to be the like ruthless and reckless one mm-hmm. but then she doesn't follow up with Cassie about it she doesn't kind of think mm-hmm. I wonder if our group dynamic is shifting in a new direction for the worse <laughs> right like she doesn't she doesn't kind of reflect on all of that but that is you know it's a pretty direct response to the last book and mm-hmm. it'll probably be something that gets followed up in a future book and so it is interesting that the seeds of the problems are there, but maybe Rachel doesn't recognize them. I think right? she does recognize. Like, she has this, she says, like, everyone in a group has a role to play. At least that's how it always works out. My role was to say, let's do it. Let's go. That's what we came here for. But I was tired, and I'd had a really, really bad few days digging down to this stupid cave. So I said, let's do it. That's what we came here for. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to get out of a role once you've started playing the part. Maybe she doesn't know, like, how difficult or, like, how bad for her that is but but right she knows it's happening in this book though saying let's do it it means that she's the hero whereas like in the last book she's like okay let's do it let's go to finestre's house and she gets zapped and knocked out of commission and Mm. sets sets this whole plan spiraling right and jake takes that responsibility onto himself but like rachel doesn't even think for once like yeah you know the last time i said let's do it (laughs) i almost got us all killed Right? It led to this other thing. That is thing, true. Right? That she, she isn't seeing maybe the logistical badness. <laughs> like, she doesn't, she doesn't think it's a bad thing to be performing her role. She recognizes that maybe it's challenging for her, but you're right that she might not recognize that, like, maybe it's not even the right thing to be doing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you wouldn't want the last book from Rachel's point of view because she gets knocked out for the entire <laughs> third act. It right? would be so short. Right. And then even the consequence she faces here is sort of heroic because she falls into the York pool in Batmorph because she's protecting Tobias, right? And then she gets out on her own, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like very independent. I can do it. I'm raising, I'm overcoming my fear. I'm, you know, doing all of this badass stuff. The idea, yeah. It is super badass, but like, it's not, I don't know. The idea that like her heroism might not be good for the group or for the mission is definitely not present here. Mm -hmm. You're right. The idea that it maybe isn't good for her is is here. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy the part where she kind of rescues herself because, Jenny, as you pointed out earlier, she has these nightmares about the year pool and what it would be like to fall in and to be to become a controller. And she does fall in as a one-winged bat and then has to morph. And she manages to do it on her own, on her own strength and escapes as an ant. And she's so proud of herself, as I think she should be, for over essentially overcoming that nightmare. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is also really meaningful in, in her arc in this book, mm-hmm. that her fears are realized. Her fear of being trapped underground, her fear of falling into the yerk mm-hmm. pool, all of those things happen. And because she is who she is, she survives them and, and overcomes them. And in some places even makes it happen, right? Being buried underground at the oh, end, yeah, she does Ted, that. as you said, that was her plan, even though she had been so afraid of it. So I think there is a really lovely arc for her in this book where the fears that she is most able to identify, mm-hmm. she overcomes. It's yeah. more the the logistics of it, but also, you know, she, as you say, she kind of takes on that role in the group of the let's go, let's do it. And there isn't a sense, I didn't get a sense at the end that that has changed at all. No, she hasn't like reconsidered that. And I wonder if that's maybe where I'm, where my sort of thought of she didn't have enough self-reflection is coming from, where I'm like... <laughs> well, that hey, makes sense. I'll buy that. You know, yeah. this is the big but thing. It, that's also very Rachel, right? So it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting that mm-hmm. the group is moving this direction, and maybe she's, like, the one who's least likely to change at yeah. this point, right? Mm-hmm. Is the group moving, in, like, away from that? Because, I mean, the problem is that they still have to keep doing these things, like... I guess they're getting, they're all getting maybe a little more jumpy about it because now they've seen things go, go wrong in different circumstances. Well, but. let's let's talk about that scene. My favorite scene in the book was when they discover the secret of the instant maple and ginger oatmeal, <laughs> and they talk about the moral implications of using it. Right. So this is when mm-hmm. Cassie is like, "Oh, I don't actually know what to do." Yeah, I remember that scene as being very funny. It was not. It was not. It was not funny. funny. Like they, I remembered that there was a chapter where they kept being like the instant maple and ginger oatmeal, and I remember finding that funny. And maybe I that just overshadowed in my mind the yeah. real. Yeah, it's a really funny running chapter. gag compared mm-hmm. to what the oatmeal actually does. Yeah. Well, so yeah, there's a lot of things to talk about here, which we should get into, but like. Rachel and Marco are obviously gung-ho about it. Tobias is sort of against it because they're using, like, an addictive drug. Which is an interesting argument. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Axe is sort of against it because it's lowering them to the Yerks level, which he recognizes you have to do, but he talks about this kind of balance you have to set, Mm -hmm. right? He's he's leaning on his experience and a light warrior-ness. He's only and a cadet. They're sort of like basically Rachel is waiting for Cassie to weigh in and she's just like, I don't know anymore. And then Rachel, this is the part that I wanted to get to. Rachel tries to articulate why she feels like they have to use the oatmeal, and she says, We're gonna try and destroy every yerk on planet Earth, right? That's our goal. This isn't like some normal war where you hope you can make peace and compromise. We can't mm-hmm. compromise. The Yerks are parasites. How do we compromise? Let them have a few million humans as hosts, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like this is the first time they've really explicitly brought up this kind of, like, idea of the endgame, right? And Mm so you don't actually see them doing anything as ruthless as the jacuzzi incident from book six, but they are willing to kind of blow up the oatmeal barrel in the yerk pool at the end without really thinking about it or second-guessing it or returning to it as like, oh, this was a tough decision, right? The reason I brought up the scene is I do feel like the group is moving in this direction and Rachel here is kind of like articulating, well, we're moving in my direction, right? Like, I'm kind of the the one who's always been like, let's do it, let's burn some slugs. And Mm -hmm. in this Rachel's vision of what the war is, nobody fundamentally disagrees with it, right? They Mm -hmm. have to kill all the Yerks in order to win. Mm -hmm. Although... One thing that I found really interesting about that scene is this is where she looks to Cassie for the moral argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Cassie 
just doesn't know anymore in part because of what she experienced during the last book. Um, And Rachel says, it frightened me to think of Cassie not knowing what was right and wrong, or at least thinking she didn't know. So they have this whole conversation. And at the end of it, Tobias says, you're right. I hate it, but you're right. We have to win. And Rachel says, I laughed without any humor at all. I'm pretty gung-ho. Unlike Cassie, unlike Tobias, perhaps, I'm ruthless at times. But even I have enough sense to know that the words, we have to win, are the first four steps on the road to hell. And then they go to hell, and it's awesome, and she saves the day. Right? Uh, (laughs) Yep. And they don't think about the ramifications of the decisions that they made, as you said earlier. Yeah, but this this feels like... I feel like I, I was talking about the last this and the last two books as like a sort of a, a unit, a progression. I feel like this is part of like what I hope will be a larger arc. They don't resolve it. This book ends with, you know, resolving the sort of monster of the week oatmeal concern. But it feels like this is going to have to go somewhere. And we've no, you're seen, right. I mean, yeah. what I kind of want is like Rachel to be like, oh, God, war is hell, which is not it's something that the, the books have done over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. in fact, mm-hmm. book seven was very much that even though it was doing kind of different things thematically, right? Yeah. But like, I think you're kind of right that as part of a exploring this issue from a bunch of different angles, maybe you need Rachel's perspective in this book. Yeah. So Axe has a line here. I remember when we read the Andalite Chronicles Part 3, Lauren had the line, what's the point of winning if by winning you lose what you were fighting for? And I, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that line. And I remember that it's echoed later in like, other lines that I remember. And this was what I was thinking of, actually. the uh, How far into savagery do you go to defeat the savage? I didn't remember it coming up here, so I think probably similar things will come up later. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that sort of is like the partner line in my head to that other line. And this is sort of the... I think this is going to be a like thesis of the of the series. Like, how do we answer that question? Yeah. Right. I actually want to take a quick step back for this scene and talk about what they're actually arguing about, um, because it is it is kind of funny, but also so they've just discovered from Mister Edelman, who's the man mm-hmm. that Rachel rescued, that the Yerks found out a certain food could help them get by without Kendron rays. They discovered it quite by accident. No one guessed what it could do. No one realized it would prove addictive, but it did. Terribly addictive. And over time, the continued ingestion of it began to eliminate the Yerks' need for Candrona rays. At the same time, it drove them crazy. You see, it seems to literally replace some of a Yerks' brainstem. And it's oatmeal. But only the instant kind. And then only the maple and ginger flavor. Did you remember that you suggested poisoning Yerks? Because this is what I thought of when you were like, we just have to find something that poisons Yerks. And I was like, instant maple and ginger oatmeal. (laughs) It is very funny that it's instant maple and ginger oatmeal. Like, what a great... Maybe it's the maple, Tobias suggested. Maybe it's the ginger. Or maybe it's the instant. (laughs) Whatever it is. Who cares? So the human controller who eats the stuff gets hooked, and the Yerk in his head goes nuts. What we have to do is find some way to get a lot of this stuff into a lot of controllers. And then they have this argument about if you essentially drug all of these yerks what's going to happen is the controllers will still be controllers the yerk Mm -hmm. doesn't die it doesn't come out of them it just goes crazy and has these moments where it's yelling in yerkish is that the word for it yerkish whatever yeah there it's yelling in an alien tongue but also occasionally the human host has some moments of lucidity 
it seems from their interactions with George, he's in control most of the time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, maybe not 80% of the time. You know, like 60, 70%. I don't know. Right. There are just these outbursts that he can't control and mm-hmm. so make him seem like there's he's less in control than he is. Yeah, so they're trying to figure out if they should give a bunch of oatmeal to human controllers. But that's not what they end up... Yeah, it's a weird argument. Way. It's weird that the first thing they focus on is... So it's like a drug. Like, that was very surprising to me. And then they sort of bring it, oh, but actually maybe it's about the hosts. And then they sort of don't really address that. And then that isn't what they end up doing. Right. It's just a very odd, this whole chapter, it was not funny. I did not find it funny. But no, I it wasn't funny. also just found it well, such a weird thing. I was going to say, the drug thing is kind of a weird place for them to start as a group. But, and the, the text doesn't go here, but I suspect it's a more sensitive issue for Tobias. Yeah. If he's, like, moving from aunt to uncle, I wouldn't be surprised if some he saw adults dealing with substance abuse issues. Yeah. And he he probably is like, well, for me, no drugs, you know, and he's kind of thinking, well, how could I do this to anyone? Yeah. Right? It's an interesting thing. It did occur to me also, like, the text doesn't go there at all, and Rachel doesn't wonder about it, which yeah. is not great. Because Tobias is like, it sounds like to me like they get addicted to it, like a drug, Tobias said. I winced. It's oatmeal, okay? Not anything illegal. Which, first of all, Rachel, that is not the point. But also, you kill Yerks, but you won't drug them? Like, that's... I feel like that would be worth addressing. They don't seem to address how this is actually less serious than what we do to Yerks on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Sort of? I mean, then I think you would, someone would need to make the argument, it's probably better to kill a Yerk than to put them into this totally insane state. Right. They don't really address that question. And it's unclear. They have a sample of one, the Yerk that's in George's head. So yeah. they don't really have a lot of information about the, the process. That's right? true. Like, but but it, if everyone Mr. is Adam like George, the impression that presumably it's, it's quite cruel yeah. to intentionally do what has happened to George's Yerk, yeah. to a bunch of Yerks. Mm-hmm. But like, the fact that the Yerks then never have to leave the hosts and the hosts are stuck with this seemed to me like the much bigger mm-hmm. problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and Axe is the one who brings that up. He says, what, yeah, about weirdly. <laughs> what about the humans? The Yerks are made invulnerable to their normal hunger for Candrona rays. They can live inside their human hosts forever, even if the oatmeal is later taken away. These hosts would lose all hope. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Animorphs books. I thought where there's life, there's hope. <laughs> that comes up, and we should talk about that. We should talk about that, too. Uh, but yeah, apparently there's only hope if there's life without an insane Yerk who's never going to leave your head. Totally bizarre. I mean, I think he's, you know, Axe is making a good point, but this drug thing comes up and goes immediately away. Now, this is the 90s, so the just say no to drugs yeah. was like, yeah, we, it, of course, like, if there's a book where the drugging is part of the plot, they have to flag, it's drugs, drugs are bad, like, right. that makes sense. Even if it's oatmeal, drugs are bad, here's how drugs work, don't do drugs, kids. Well, actually, that's interesting. I want to call that out. The instant maple and ginger oatmeal probably has to be that ridiculous in order for them to yeah, do this plot at all. They couldn't. Point. They probably couldn't. They probably felt like they couldn't get away with a more serious version of this story. Yeah. Where you know they wouldn't use like heroin or something, but right. basically like alien heroin or you yeah. Know, well, it's it's a, a lot and more. I think it's important to the general dynamic of these books that we have the sort of levity of like instant maple and ginger oatmeal, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think from our perspective, at least from my perspective, reading this for the first time, I don't think of the drug epidemics of the 80s and 90s, I think of the opioid oh, yeah, epidemic that we're having point. now. Yeah. And so I, I think I'm having a different 
reaction in some ways to this because I'm reading it in the midst of a very different drug war. And I just thought that was, it was a really interesting to try and think of the context for this in 97, 98, like Mm -hmm. what, what were they thinking of? If you say, you know, maybe this oatmeal is a drug, but you know what? It's a war. We've, we've just got to do it. And that's like a very different perspective. So they sort of end this debate, at least in this section of the book, on Jake has this analogy, which is a little baffling, honestly. He says, in the Civil War, they were ending slavery. Most of the Southern soldiers who were killed weren't slave owners. They were just guys trying to be brave. Maybe they could have worked out a compromise. Maybe they could have ended the war earlier if the North had agreed to leave some people as slaves. That's a weird assertion. Okay. But would that have been right? No. So the war had to go on until everyone was free. Which Do you is... want to talk about his argument first or the basic facts here? Because I have a fact <laughs> check for Jake. Yeah. I... Okay, please. Give me your fact check. Okay. So I, I knew this was wrong, but I looked up a bunch of facts about it. And there's a great uh, article on Slate by Jamal Bowie and Rebecca Onion called Slavery Myths Debunked. Um, but one of the common myths about the Civil War is that a lot of many, most Southern soldiers weren't slave owners. They were just mm-hmm. guys trying to be brave, as Jake says. Mm-hmm. Um, so... On average, a third of families in the South owned slaves. It varied from like 20% to 50%, depending on the state. But the important thing about the South was that the, it's a, it was a culture of white supremacy, and mm-hmm. pretty much everyone who was fighting the Civil War probably aspired to own slaves at some yeah. point. Mm-hmm. And most of the slave-owning families are like small farmers and not the kind of giant plantation owners that mm. you think of, which, sure, the giant plantation owners, smaller population, probably not all fighting. So the I understand why a middle school kid in the nineties <laughs> yeah. would not have bring that perspective to it, but the narrative that he is using in his argument is one hundred percent factually wrong. That's good to know. The other piece of it is that you probably don't want to whitewash the North so much about doing it for moral reasons. Mm-hmm. Not to say that mm-hmm. the war wasn't about slavery, but ending slavery was a necessary means to keep the country together, as much as it was a moral issue for some people who were fighting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny they end on, the war had to go on till everyone was free. When what they're deciding is like, okay, so we can leave some people as slaves to the Yerkes forever. Yeah. That's a weird, I don't know. I was a little unclear how this analogy was what resolved the issue for them. It's a it's a bad analogy. Yeah. Both from a like actual <laughs> factual <laughs> perspective and from a moral argument perspective and from a what exactly are you trying to prove? Because, mm-hmm. yes... Jake ends on, so the war had to go on till everyone was free, and Tobias adds, or dead. Mm-hmm. But okay, that's a pretty good example. You're right, we have to win. I, oh, a couple things. Like, that's not, it's not a good example. No. It, it's not at all. Jenny, as you said, I mean, the two options are life as a slave to the yerk, or some free will, but with an insane yerk in your brain. Mm-hmm. And he's, I think, trying to say, we have to free everybody, even if it means that they still have a yerk in their brain, but the yerk is insane, but at least now they have some free will and an ability to communicate. And that the slavery is the yerk in control, and the not slavery is still having a yerk, but sometimes being able to communicate. Bizarre. I wonder if this analogy is really meant to address Rachel's point about, like, What's our end goal here? It's to kill all the Yerks, right? Not to, like, leave them some compromised number of hosts. So I guess it's more, I guess maybe he's arguing in the context of the larger picture, oh, yes, we do actually need to kill all of these Yerks. So I guess 
we need to poison them now as part of our like victory goals. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess maybe in the larger context, it makes a little more sense. It's very strange to apply it to the specific situation because mm-hmm. you're not really freeing those people if you poison their yurks. Yeah. And and actually, I thought their discussion about that compromise was really interesting because Rachel's saying we're trying to destroy every year on planet Earth. And that's our goal. So we we're not trying to make a compromise. We can't compromise their parasites. How would we even do that? And Axe says they will never compromise anyway. They must be forced back to their own home world. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is a new and exciting end game. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, yeah. right. The humans only care about Earth. But, like, I guess that's, the, right. now we hear, I think maybe this is the first time we've heard Nandalite talk about what the end game is. Right. Which is presumably to contained. kill every Yurk who's not in their home world and then, like, set Fly up, patrols forever. Yeah, fly yeah. patrols and basically just yeah. say, hey, here's our compromise. Never fly into space or we'll blow you up. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the mm-hmm. end of the war. Yeah, you live here now. I mean, it's... And also, it, I don't know that it makes a ton of sense to me as an end goal for the battle on Earth itself because is the plan then get all the Yurks into Yurk jacuzzis <laughs> put them on a spaceship, send them back to their home world, including the ones that are currently in in hosts. I don't think it was... I don't think Axe's statement was, like, contradicting Rachel's. I think it was, kill the ones we have to. If anyone's left, I guess if they're prisoners, we can send them back to the year. That's my guess. I mean... Oy. A couple yeah. more things on this scene. Just, like, little character mm. notes that were great. Yeah. Uh, Axe says, we Andalites have been at war longer than you. We understand the temptation to sink to the level of your enemy. So this is the first time I think we get a little bit of the Elfangor philosophy yeah. coming via Axe. Yeah. So maybe I've, I was a little too hard on the Elfangor <laughs> post-Antelite Chronicles because, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't cite any specific examples, but Elfangor's decision not to blow up the, the York transport ship um, and uh, Alaran's whole sinking to the level of using a quantum virus thing mm-hmm. uh, are both relevant historical examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Axe talks about this idea of balance and not being totally about burning slugs so it's interesting that maybe that's where the restraint comes from yeah another character known in this scene is uh is cassie so we talked a lot in the last episode about cassie's moral dilemma specifically about um this or three's twin brother and there's a, a sort of precy of that argument here where rachel sort of describes here's what just happened. Cassie demanded his destruction. She'd asked Jake to do it. Jake had refused. And now Cassie doesn't really know right. She feels she doesn't know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she gives this cynical laugh and says, all the rights and wrongs, all the lines between good and evil, just go wafting and waving and swirling around, don't they? And it's a And like rough. Rachel, I didn't know Cassie was capable of a cynical laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's just I'm a worried. rough... I'm worried scene like poor Cassie well, it's so interesting how Rachel talks about it she says Cat, uh, I don't know why but it frightened me to think of Cassie not knowing what was right and wrong Cassie was my best friend I counted on her to balance me she was supposed to be sensible when I was reckless she was supposed to be moral when I was ruthless and what an interesting lens on their relationship I don't know if we've ever seen Cassie thinking of it that way I don't know if she would think of it that way that like Rachel it's not just that Rachel like doesn't necessarily agree with her moral philosophy or something. It's that she sort of outsourcing her ethics yeah. to Cassie. Well, no. She's like, I'm not good at this. I just need to fight this battle. It's you do the, the moral reasoning. It's the crocodile thing and the uh, rats in the school thing. Whenever Rachel and Cassie get together, even in their kind of like day-to-day life, it's the same dynamic, right? That's what jumped out to me about it is I feel like we've seen from both of them when they're uh-huh. on their little like 
low stakes capers. Like Cassie's like playing this part of being like, oh, don't do anything crazy, Rachel. And she's like, that's what you're here for. I'm going to jump into this crocodile pit. <laughs> or like, you know, Cassie brings Rachel along for kind of like plausible deniability or whatever. Like, yeah. They yeah, have Cassie's this interesting using dynamic. Rachel for like her gung-ho-ness. And yeah, it is a really interesting dynamic. And it's interesting that Rachel seems to think her recklessness can only function within this ecosystem of balance like she's counting on others to balance her she's not going to be able to do it herself Mm -hmm. that's a good point it will be interesting to see where that goes and to see how this resolves for cassie since it seems like she uh she's having a lot of trouble right now like this i don't think it really resolves for her in this book Mm -hmm. yeah now i'm interested to see if there's more references to this in the next couple of books yeah, and we talked about her nightmares before, but the line that jumped, that, that happens right after this scene when she talks about her, your, your cool nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, and the line that jumped out to me was, knowing I am doomed and feeling the despair and hating that feeling inside of me. Yeah. So thinking about it that way, it's like the reason she is so decisive, in, even internally, is because she's protecting herself from that vulnerable feeling that mm-hmm. totally unmakes her, right? So it's yeah. like we've seen before... I think it was a book five after they all did ants when Marco and Rachel go to the principal's office yes, because Rachel yeah. just starts beating up another yeah. another girl. I feel like that's like the kind of thing that happens when Rachel is like stops to be self-reflective about the trauma she's going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right before that thing you just read, um, she says, I hate the sound of despair. It makes me mad. Mm-hmm. And I think that, mm-hmm. that the anger is something she takes refuge in mm-hmm. and... It's easier than fear. And so making these reckless decisions and getting away with it, it like keeps, it like recharges the battery, right? She can Mm -hmm. just kind of like keep going. And she feels like she can because she has people like Cassie to balance her and now Cassie's not doing it. Right. And Mm -hmm. what's going to happen there? Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of potential for, for badness here. We were talking a little earlier about how Rachel feels the need to sort of be strong and like sort of charge forward alone, which is funny in this context of, and she needs to know that there are balancing forces behind her. But I also feel like we tend to get less interpersonal relationship stuff in Rachel books Mm -hmm. because she's so focused on her path and what's ahead of her. And she kind of needs to trust that the pieces around her are just okay on their own. Mm -hmm. And we had said in 13, I think we were talking about how uh, Tobias books, we've seen two of them so far are very much about Rachel And Rachel books are never about Tobias, like Mm. not that we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that really says anything about how she feels about Tobias. I think that maybe says something about how she thinks about and positions like relationships. Like she, there aren't, they aren't things that she like expends thought on. She kind of just, they're just kind of there. Like, cause we do see that the two of them are close in this book. There's this thing like, but I went to my window and opened it just as I do every morning. Tobias arrived almost silent. He swept inside and landed easily in my dresser, and then they do homework together. And it's like, oh, they do this like almost every morning. Mm-hmm. And we just don't see her thinking about it. Yeah. Can I actually read this paragraph because it made me so happy? <laughs> sure. Uh, I guess it was a weird scene, me with this big red-tailed hawk perched on the edge of my desk, sitting there in the glow of a single lamp while the rest of my family still slept. But we did it lots of mornings, whenever Tobias managed to find an early breakfast and it wasn't raining. And then they had this discussion about going to the York pool and whether they're, whether she's afraid of it or not. And I mean, it's a brief discussion, but I thought that was really sweet of kind of imagining seeing him fly in every morning and letting them do homework together. I really love that take on how Rachel feels about Tobias and how 
it doesn't come across in the book. Because I was like, I really wanted it. I really wanted there to be more oh, yeah. racial device moments in this book. But I think it's kind of, I, I really love that take in the relationship because it says so much about the fact that she doesn't care that he's a bird forever, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's almost just like she's she's going with it. She really likes yeah. him. She's willing to die for him. Yeah. And she doesn't, it's it, like, it's not even... The, in the top 10 things that she needs to like deal with the process, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? She's so confident in that relationship. And maybe there's like a little that. bit like, you know, you wonder if Tobias could use more support or like we've sort of mm-hmm. seen she can be a little insensitive, right? I think in 13, she was showing a better That's ability true. to support him. This wasn't right? a book where he particularly needed. Right, 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 right. Probably. And, and probably there are things that they don't, she doesn't reflect on their like college plan, which is something they talked about Ugh. books and books and books ago, Right. Um, but for now, at least, I kind of love that she's just like, yeah, I hang out with this Tobias. This is how it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every morning. There was this really nice thing, um, which I think is very indicative of their characters, when they're all escaping from the air pool after she explodes the ceiling. Tobias was the last to arrive. You scared us to death. Where have you been? I yelled at him. I was worried about you too, Rachel, he said with a smile and a silent voice, mm-hmm. which there's so much there. There's the thing where she turns fear into anger, how she doesn't like actively think I was worried about Tobias. Tobias is important to me. No, she just like goes into like, you scared us to death, um, yelling. And he knows what that means and like recognizes that like, recognizes how much she cares about him and like takes it as care, mm-hmm. which is how she means it. Uh-huh. And he can be open and sort of vulnerable yes. about his own feelings. He like, can be, even yeah. though that's really not yeah. how she operates. Mm-hmm. And then there's one, there's one bit where her feelings come through really strongly so I think we should talk about their very silly plan when they morph roaches in order to get inside the <laughs> mental institution. Oh, the mental institution. That's a whole other uh, bag of worms. Yeah. Can we'll of get worms? There. It's a can of worms. Yeah. Um, so how do they come up with this plan? They need to visit George Edelman. Mm-hmm. It turns out Rachel's mom is representing George Edelman. His family wants him to be institutionalized. He's the guy who was jumping out the window. Yeah, and I would like, is he putting up some kind of legal fight? I don't really remember, but it doesn't matter. But so then Rachel's mom is saying, like, yeah, his family says he's incompetent, but I'm I'm saying that he's not. And the reason is George is claiming he has an alien living in his head. He calls them Yerks or Yorks or something. So then they go to the Rupert J. Kirk State Mental Health Facility. I just want to say, she had a Gondor Industries. Is Kirk random? I doubt it. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, how are we going to get in? It's easier than the Finestri Mansion or the York Pool. And they decide uh, they're going to go in through the food truck and morph cockroaches. Why did they not just morph flies outside the wall and go in? Fly he in? says it's too far to travel and fly or cockroach morph. So really? They, flies are, like, fast. So they fly, <laughs> they morph into seagulls. Because they did flies last book, Jenny. Oh. <laughs> uh, fly into the truck, morph into human, and then morph into cockroach and hide in the food boxes. What a weird plan. And the food boxes are full of bananas. Mm-hmm. From Ecuador or something. Yes, turns out. And what does that mean? That means they're also full of tarantulas. At least one tarantula. What are the odds? Well. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> okay, so the reason that they decide to... So they're in a, in a crate of bananas. Uh-huh. And they're talking about 
Cassie and how she washes her bananas before she peels them. Uh-huh. And Rachel thinks it's because there might be bugs. And Jake says, no, it's because of pesticides. And they're like, well, why would you need to spray pesticides on bananas? They, What's going to eat through banana skin? Okay, wait. Logistical question. Yeah. If the pesticides are on the banana peel, why do you need to wash the banana peel if you're not going to eat it? Really good point. If they go through the banana peel, washing the banana peel isn't going to do any good anyway. What if Cassie eats her banana peels? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I feel like they would have pointed that out. (laughs) What if if in the Animorphs books, nobody peels bananas? Whoa, it's that's the it's an alternate universe. That's what makes it different than our universe. Yeah. What happens when Marco's eating the banana later? But is, it, is it an unpeeled be- banana? We don't know. We don't know. Well, you said she washes them before she peels them. That's what so does she <laughs> peel them and then just eat the peel? Cut all that. Cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> we can probably cut most of this. We <laughs> Oh, no. no, I think going into detail here is great for okay. the, Mostly the uh, because WTF the, of yeah. all the specifics here. So they go into this whole thing about pesticides because, Rachel says, I think it's for the spiders. Haven't you ever heard how sometimes there are tarantulas? Who's ever heard that? Bananas? I have heard of this. Oh, no. And it scared the, the bejesus out of me because I don't like spiders particularly much. And had I read this book as a child, I would never have eaten bananas again. <laughs> Ever. I'm now an adult and I can say probably the tarantulas come out at the grocery store so I don't have to worry about them. Only the people at the grocery store have to worry about them. But you're never going to work in a grocery store unpacking bananas. Or get bulk orders of bananas. Because what? No. Because (laughs) they would go bad so quickly. What would you do with that, Ted? It's a good point. A banana party. Are you going to host a banana party? I will go <laughs> Not if there are tarantulas Only if in you the filter out the tarantulas. Yeah, this is the problem. So there are tarantulas crawling around <laughs> what bananas. What do a banana party? It happens all the time. They come up in holds of ships. And they're like, what are the odds there's a tarantula in this particular crate of barrels? And then they turn around and, oh, there's a tarantula. What I love about this moment is Rachel sees the tarantula first. And she's like, um, guys, don't make any sudden movements, okay? And Marco's like, ha, <laughs> yeah, right. very funny, very funny. And then as soon as the boys see the tarantula, they scream and run. <laughs> it's so good. This is one of those scenes that like happen in so many of the books where there's something relatively minor where the character legitimately almost dies. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this happens so often. Their lives are so freaking dangerous. It's, it's so true. true. <laughs> like, the fly thing in the last book, he like almost dies on like the bulkhead of an airplane. It's, yeah. What a bad place to go. In this one... Uh, Jake and Marco are screaming and running away, and Jake yells, Rachel, where are you? As though she can do anything. Oh, I think it was, Rachel, where are you? Are you okay? Not okay. like, Rachel, where are you? Save us in your roach morph. I was very confused. <laughs> I like the that. idea that Jake's like, Rachel, save us. <laughs> Grizzly roach. So they're like all three roaches away. together can take on the tarantula. <laughs> exactly. Grizzly roach. There's his life flashes before his eyes, and he knows that Rachel's the only one strong enough to save him. <laughs> that is legitimate, unless it's Axe, and there's a crocodile, in which case Axe would be right. the one to call. Exactly. So they, so she gets caught by the spider. The spider is about to eat her, and then somebody opens the box and freaks out because there's a spider, which, fair. I'm um, allergic to spiders! <laughs> Someone else was holding a yogurt and drops it. <laughs> There's some great writing in here. She sees, I was looking up at a nostril, a pair of huge, hairy human nostrils. Bananas all over me. Brilliant (laughs) sunlight everywhere. Yuck. It's Um, quite the scene. 
Then they try and stomp on the tarantula, which fair. But the tarantula still has Rachel in its claws or teeth or something. And Tobias says, is that one of you? Thanks be to millions millions of years of evolution that has given the hawk its magnificent eyes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Love those eyes. It's me, (laughs) I yelled, and Tobias eats the spider. This is it. I love it so much. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Love those eyes. (laughs) Sometimes she does want Tobias to come and sweep her off of her five working legs. <laughs> I mean, she really wants to ask to just sweep the tarantula off of her, but it's a similar oh, that's right. sentiment. That's right. Gross. Ugh. So they're in this mental institution. What do they keep calling it? They the number of times that a character in this book is like, "Oh, the nut house." I'm like, "Is that?" I feel like that just would not be my impulse. Was that like more a 90s thing or like is it just cuz I'm not a kid anymore and like I don't have that immediate like haha the nut house like impulse I don't know it's it was really it sounds like something you'd pick up from your parents yeah (laughs) or from yeah I was gonna say also other kids I mean I guess it's all reinforcing the same idea all of the mental health language in this book is very very bad it actually starts right before they go to the institution the mom is describing that he's uh, the family wants to declare this man incompetent and Rachel translates nuts wacko allegedly wacko and her mom says don't say wacko mentally unbalanced will do fine his family wants to have him institutionalized permanently so I mean the mom has a point the you know don't don't say don't use those words and then the next chapter is just all nut jokes yeah I'm wondering like what would have been a better way to deal with this? Because you've got a bunch of 13-year-olds in the 90s dealing with the issue of mental health. Like, this is probably not unrealistic. But, like, just because it's realistic, that like, doesn't necessarily mean that, like, you want to portray that. I don't know. Like, I, what would have been a better way to treat this? Also, don't necessarily think that's true. And this Maybe is not. very much, you know, my own experience. But my family has, has a history of mental illness on both sides mm-hmm. of the family. And so... As a teenager in the 90s, having yeah. had that experience with people in my family, all of this would have, at the time, really hurt my feelings. So maybe it's more that this is centering the experiences of people who just haven't had much contact with us. Yeah. Right. And that's, like, that's like a major issue. Here. Yeah, having, like, a, a family member who's struggling with it or, like, some kind yeah. of other... Because, like, I mean, we know... We know that Tobias's grandfather struggled with PTSD. He probably doesn't know that. Um, but, like, Tobias at least comes from this background where, like, we don't know if there are specific mental health issues, like, with his aunt and uncle. We don't know if he has any idea why his parents left. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine this is, like, and like really awesome for him. Marco's dad was at least oh, struggling yeah. with depression for two years. And that yeah. impacted Marco's life in a really big way. Yeah. And they just don't have any empathy about that at all. And I think even in the 90s, there were teens who were struggling with their own mental illnesses. Yeah. So, Which might make which, them which more also, likely to joke about it, honestly. But also, the Animorphs are, too. So even yeah. if you played up the idea that, like, they're really defensive because they're afraid of being institutionalized because... Which is honestly kind of so how I read it, but... 
It's I, not really it's, explicit it, in there. It's yeah, not, I didn't read yeah. that at all. I mean, just because even... even No, like most of the jokes were just jokes. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And like even Cassie and Tobias, who are the two who are kind of not as much engaging with the like, haha, this is very funny. They still do a little. Yeah. yeah you know, Cassie's size, I, I don't think the patients probably like to be called nuts. And Tobias says, Cassie's right. It's not politically correct to call nuts nuts. It's like... And then Cassie makes a joke about it. It's like the whole You know, I could swear I heard that bird talking. I must be nuts. Yeah, it's like they're like trying, they're like making little efforts at like dismantling it and then building it up again. Yeah. Like, and it's almost like, um, I feel like this portrayal of what mental illness is, is ranting and raving nonsense. Yeah. Right? Because that's when the Yerks go crazy, yeah. it's like, oh, they're just saying random nonsense and they're flailing about randomly. And so like this idea of a, a lunatic is what mental institutions are for. And yeah. there's no understanding of the like breadth of issues that people face. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I, and we can talk about this more later, but the, the, I think the book overall is kind of like, Oh, Rachel starts out. She doesn't really care too much about this guy, George. And then by the end, she cares enough about him to kind of like, hopefully help him have a better life. And then she ends on this note of like, and if you ever see like, a crazy person on the side of the road, give him some change, because that'll make you a good person. And yeah. that's like, let's just reduce it to this, like, one kind of example and not kind of, I, I don't know. The, yeah, the, the, situation that, the situation that George the Edelman other. is in has very little to do with any non-controller in a mental institution. <laughs> that is a very good point. And the books point. do not acknowledge it at all. In fact, they try and say these things are exactly alike. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like just like fundamentally that analogy is flawed. It was a really interesting, like, I don't know if the books, I'm sure the books didn't like consciously mean it this way, but like a portrayal of mental illness as like, mostly you're totally fine. And then this thing that is not you kind of like takes you over. And right. I was curious, like, is this tapping into like ideas of like your mental illness is not the same as you it's like an illness that you have the way you have a crazy yerk in your head but like also i don't know i don't know no 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 no. i think that's exactly what the ending does Mm -hmm. which i think is terrible but like i think that's i think you're onto something that's the that's the analogy that they're trying to make yeah and i think that's a you know what a lovely way to to think about it but the way that they treat it is so yeah. awful that I am not giving Applegate the benefit <laughs> of the doubt here. And the other aspect of this that I wanted to bring up was his mental illness and suicide. Mm-hmm. Because Rachel's view of suicide is so overwhelmingly cruel yeah. that I, a lot of the compassion I think I otherwise would have had for her in this situation was diminished. Um, she talks about, uh, what are you supposed to do? Prove he's not wacko? I mean, he is, right? He jumped off a building. She has this thing about, by now I wasn't feeling sorry for him so much as really annoyed. I mean, what is it with people killing themselves? How big a moron do you have to be not to figure out that at least if you stay alive, you have some hope as opposed to being dead and have zero? Yeah, it's... She's got no empathy. Holy goodness. It's this thing where she lashes out with like... You know, the idea of, like, killing yourself, like, makes her afraid, I think. And that makes her mad. Like, she doesn't want to think about having this weakness where you want to end things. Like, she just needs to, like, go so far in the other direction. I, yeah, it's I really see, bad. I see no evidence of this being a reaction to her f- having empathy for this person. or No, or no, it's definitely not empathy for this person. But it is, like, it. I mean, I'm not saying it's okay at all. No, no, no. But I think that it is sort of symptomatic 
or maybe just, rep- yeah, it's like representative of her general, like, this is a thing that is different that I don't understand. It seems like maybe it's bad. I'm going to be mad about it. Yeah. that's And also the way that she, when presented with moral dilemmas in previous books, she's so quick to make up her mind. Yes. It's just, yeah. and again, I don't know where this is coming from necessarily, right? It would make more sense if she'd had some more personal experience or something. But like, she doesn't want to deal with the complexity of despair this person might be feeling. So she's like, I'm yeah. going to put them down instead. I don't think Which it I, has to come from anywhere. I think like not having had to deal with it thus far in her life, really, she doesn't want to have to deal with it. She doesn't know how to deal with it. The idea of dealing with it is like kind of frightening. So you know what? No, we're just going to make like a blanket statement. Yeah. I and, think it comes from like lack of suffering, honestly. And mm-hmm. I'd be curious to get your reaction to where Rachel's coming from with the other thing that's happening at the beginning. So she's the one who sees him about to jump. And she's like, hey, we have to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And when she jumps, she gets excited by the challenge of having six birds rescue a man who's trying to kill himself. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, let's do it. We can do this. Right. She's like, this is a this is going to be a fun problem that I can solve. She has no reaction of like, what a horrible moment. Like she has no she's not paralyzed by like the tragedy of what she's about to see. And she's like, oh, this is awesome. We're now six birds. And, like, Tobias is helping them glide him over into the water. And then she gets to go and, like, she heroically morphs into a dolphin in the water in order to, like, rescue the guy. And she's, like, doing all of this stuff. But basically, there's the moment after they drop him in the water where she's exulting at the thrill of what she's just done. And then she momentarily feels guilty because she's like, oh, I hope the other people are okay. Right? (laughs) So I'm wondering, like, what's your take on what this says about... Rachel. I have thoughts on this. Because, okay, so later when she's talking about it, she says, now I was feeling defensive. And she's feeling defensive against the idea that she has any responsibility for this guy. It was mostly just a goof, you know? I just wanted to see if we could do it. It was it was a challenge. That's it, a challenge. And I think she's telling the truth. Like, I think you're right that she saw it mostly as a challenge. And I think this thing where she sees a thing that needs to be done, and then she does it, and she doesn't have, like, strong or like complex like empathetic feelings about it is part of what makes her so effective yeah and she is not like you were saying earlier you guys were saying earlier like she is not recognizing that as a problem like she's recognizing other things about herself as problems but like this she isn't like complicating really at all yeah and i mean there the way that she resolves things at the end she's like marco shoot that barrel i'm gonna blow up the ceiling right she's just like i'm just doing these things it's very pragmatic. Here's a problem. I can solve it right now. Let's move yeah. on to the next thing. And it, like, on one level, it's true that, like, this is what makes her, like, very effective. It's like when she charged at the, like, eight Horkbajir at the end of book seven. And she's like, I didn't realize how bad it was going to be. If I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. Good thing I didn't realize. Like, it's, it enables her to do all these things. But at what cost to, like, at what cost to her own compassion? But also, like, at what point is she going to, like, do one of these things that's impulsive and doesn't involve enough empathy and it ends up being really, really bad. Mm-hmm. I'm also just worried about her. Yeah. I mean, even as a 13-year-old, I think having an expectation that I'm I'm annoyed and so I'm regretting saving this guy's life. Yeah. That's so hard. She says that multiple yeah. times. It's really, really bad. The stratum is my responsibility. I recognize I rescued him and I'm starting to think I'm sorry I did. Yeah. That's like I don't think she fully means, but like she's not really thinking about how terrible that it would be if she meant it. She is not thinking about this at all. And I 
I understand that she is filling an archetype here and, you know, that's a, that's its own thing, but there is enough emotional intelligence in this group that Rachel's complete lack of it is a little concerning. I'm worried about her not having the time and space to think about what that means for her, that she is frustrated and therefore wishes she hadn't saved a man's life. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm Yikes, Rachel. Yeah, she needs to maybe stop outsourcing her compassion to Cassie. Mm-hmm. I think the thing at the end where she saves him is sort of supposed to be the completion of an arc like that, but, like, it doesn't really... I mean, she saved him at the beginning, so it's not really a different action, and it, like... And also, a grizzly bear walks in, knocks a bunch of doors down in, in the institution, right? And just lets him out, right? And she says, I-, I couldn't really help Mr. Edelman. No one could. But some of the time, his own human mind was in charge. And during those times, I wanted him to be free. Okay. But then, as you said earlier, by the way, if you ever see some poor, mad, deranged gentleman wandering the streets and raving away about things that live in his head, if you can handle it, give the man your spare change. Okay. So what you have done is you have taken this person who was institutionalized, yes, mm-hmm. but in a place where he was being cared for fed, housed, mm-hmm. etc. And you are releasing him into the world and forcing him to live on the change given to him by compassionate strangers. Yeah. Because no one is going to be taking him seriously. The, I don't necessarily think she's think saving this guy. Less, yeah, that's less about Rachel's character and more like this book is maybe making a statement about mental institutions. Yeah. Which, like, I'm like, not sure they really thought it through. No, because it's also, and you know... I don't know if this is true, but how I read that is now he is a homeless person. He is living on the streets and because no one will take him seriously anymore. And maybe part of that is that sometimes the yerk breaks through and speaks in mm-hmm. galart or whatever to people. But it, it's an indictment of our treatment of people with mental illness as a society. And uh, at least I think it should be. And it isn't. It's just a, well, at least he's not in an institution anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the book doesn't really engage with that. We don't really find out what the institution is like. It's Yeah, and and the It's whole, just sort of like freedom is the best thing, which is a nice message, I guess, but like this is a weird context for it. And the treatment of homeless people in general in this yeah. series is bad. I don't I don't know. I'm, and the whole implication that like she did this and there were tons of witnesses. I guess she just thought spoke like so everyone could hear weirdly. Um, because these people are all quote unquote nuts and no one was going to take them seriously because everyone in a mental institution has no, is like totally detached from reality. Apparently. Right. That's the only kind of mental illness there is Mm -hmm. as we've discovered in this book. Yeah. Seeing things that aren't there, no one will believe them because like, that's not how any, there are nurses. Even if you don't believe the people who are in that <laughs> That's institution. That's true. It wouldn't just have been I mean, the other It's just patients. a completely bizarre view of of everything. I don't know. I was, And I feel bad because I don't think that I engaged with this book. With the characters, with Rachel, with the plot of the book itself. Because I was just so offended. That's really fair. And I, I feel a little bad about it. I don't think I you should feel bad about I have, that. I had the same reaction. I had the same reaction. <sighs> I, I don't think it stood in the way of my engaging with this book, but I don't think you have to feel bad about it having done that because mm-hmm. it's there and so that's I, I the could, content they chose to put here. I was thinking about this. The premise of this book is a pretty 
plausible explanation for what happened to the woman in Megamorphs 1 that Rachel meets while she has amnesia. And so whether or not that's true, the fact that Rachel met a woman who's like living on her own in the woods dealing with mental illness because of the Yurks came away from that experience thinking, this is the life I want this guy to have. It's like (laughs) a huge failure on the part of the books, right? Like, yeah, um, it's not... I, I mean, I agree with everything you were saying, Gray. I mean, these books don't have to be political statements and or, or social statements. They, they don't have to be their, their children's books about aliens. I mean, you can't talk about this stuff without making a statement about it. I think it's yeah. trying kind of not to make much of a statement about it, and that's mm-hmm. part of its failure. Right. I also think it's it reflects a little bit of the they're like a they're like a a squad of people that only have certain tools at their disposal for doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like a they're like a guerrilla group that's like waging a war, and they can't bring any. There are no institutional solutions yeah, to what true. they're doing, mm-hmm. and there's no diplomatic solution, at least mm-hmm. so far, to what they're doing. They sort of have a very limited set of tools at their disposal, which are basically like terrorism yeah so this this it it, it kind of fits with like your average teenager is kind of like very anti-authority and kind of like Mm -hmm. well you know institutions are probably bad you know like all these all these things are bad i wouldn't want to be locked up like yeah they compare it to school that both of them are places you don't want to be that have bad food (laughs) their kind of approach to these and like i mean in rachel's defense like he did tell her he'd rather not be in there i mean he probably wasn't he wasn't saying that as in like yes it, literally any life would be better than this i'd rather be on the streets that is not what he said maybe he would prefer to you know be with his family and have them accept him like maybe that's what he meant but you know the books made a choice to say to have him say that yeah. um, i wondered how many others there were because yeah. it, it can't just be one person Who's your? Yeah, they don't right. even ask that. They don't even. And they've confiscated two hundred pounds of instant maple and ginger oatmeal in the York pool. Yeah. so that's a lot. A lot of, of that's a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of addicts, yeah. Right. So and presumably the Yorks are killing them because that's been their standard right. mo so far. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, one sort of compassionate solution might be find all of them, mm-hmm. give them their own, you know, place because they will understand what each other is kind of going through. I don't know. It's interesting that presumably the Yorks are killing them. That does make sense. And that makes this two books in a row where they face a situation where, like, last book it was, okay, a Yurk is being killed every three days and the host with it. Okay, I guess we're okay to let that continue is sort of the... They don't directly make that decision, but that's essentially what they do. And in this one, it's, okay, so if the Yurk gets addicted to this oatmeal then the, you know, the Yerks as an organization are probably going to have to kill the Yerk and the host. And uh, I guess we're okay with furthering that by getting more Yerks addicted to the oatmeal. So they're like, they're like making a lot of choices that are in favor of passively killing hosts, like human mm-hmm. hosts. Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they're like, no, but we can't morph humans. That would be like invasive. And it's just like, are you really like comparing these act like... You're not willing to, like, actively take this action that's, like, a little bit questionable, but you are willing to, like, passively let these things happen that are, or, like, further these things that are really terrible. Mm -hmm. Right. And they don't, Jake doesn't seem to be worried about Tom accidentally becoming addicted to instant oatmeal. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't see him run home and say, oh, like, we can't, I hate oatmeal now, Mom. Right. Um, That's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they're a Wheaties family. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tweeties uh, are saving Tom's life. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so I was just thinking, why do the Animorphs have so little empathy for other people, given that the morphing power is all about experiencing different <laughs> types of life, right? Mm. And so thinking about it, they have a lot of experience of like bodily empathy, what it's like to be another creature's body. But because the your mind is always your own, there's they don't they sort of can't have the experience of like morphing somebody who's struggling with a set of issues that they don't have mm. to understand what it's like or even to understand like Rachel can't understand why Cassie or Marco thinks the way that they do. I, that's kind of an interesting limitation of what the what the books can do. And it's also kind of like why you need you need the six different narrators because they yeah. all bring they all bring something different even though they can all turn into the same set mm-hmm. of animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Should we talk about some of the other characters as we see them in this book? Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the look that we got into Jake's continual struggles with leadership, which is not really funny, but this example kind of was. They're, they're trying to break into the ear pool through the McDonald's, which is very funny in its own right, because you have to order a Happy Meal with extra happy. So they're planning to do this, and Jake says, oh yeah, once we have our controller, we follow him in, no problem. Then he added grimly, oh yeah, no problem, a little picnic in the yerk pool. I'm sure they'll all buy that. <laughs> oh, Jake, Marco said. You said that last part out loud. We heard it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it was very funny. And of course, the underlying stuff is like, not super funny, because we know he's like, struggling with like, how to be a leader, how to like, set a fearless example like, to what extent he needs to lie to everyone else about his own fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love... So, this is one of my favorite Jake things in the Animorphs books, and this might be the first instance we get it, which is Jake failing to be funny. <laughs> they're all... They're, like, trading these admittedly offensive, I'm nuts, you're nuts, nuts, yep, nuts, yep. nuts jokes back and forth, and Jake's like, I think we've had enough jokes for now. And then a few lines later, he's like, he says, every time we start to take something for granted, we end up getting hammered. He grinned in anticipation. We'd have to be nuts to get careless. No one laughed. I say, we'd have to be, uh, oh, fine, geez. don't laugh, I don't care. <laughs> it's just like such, such a dad. I know. He was like, and I'm sure he was like worrying and like processing in his mind, like, oh, what's the plan? What's the plan? And people, they're having fun. And he's like, oh, I missed it. He's like, all right, I'm going to come up with a joke. I, I like, I really like, okay, I got one. I got one. <laughs> the moment's passed. You know, it had not occurred to me that he hadn't been paying attention to the other nuts jokes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> There's also a bit about Jake, uh, Jake's leadership style at the beginning when they're trying to convince him to go to the opening of Planet oh, Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, so apparently Rachel and Marco in particular, but but sort of all of them, have been conspiring together to do the thing we were never supposed to do, use our powers for personal selfish reasons. But it was tricky, see, because we knew Jake, my cousin and our sort of leader, might get all tense and righteous on us. Not that he's that way at all. He isn't, but he's very responsible. Someone has to be, and it sure isn't me. So there's the Rachel. But it's it's them trying to convince Jake that they mm-hmm. should be able to do this. And it was this whole scene of like, come on, Jake, you know, this is going to be fun. I know this is selfish, but please. And then 
Marco says, uh, by the way, not that you care, Jake, but a Mr. O'Neill is going to be there. A Mr. Shaquille O'Neill. Shaq? Shaq. Well, then we're there, Jake said. It's like they found his button. Very funny. Oh, man. I enjoyed how much Rachel and Marco, like, had banter in this book. Yeah. Like, it kind of feels like their relationship is settling to something that, like, they both enjoy. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Like, they they were, like, getting together to, to convince Jake to do this this opening caper mm-hmm. thing. And then uh, there's this, okay, so this is, you know, a bad joke about nuts. Um, but when they first go to the, the mental institution, so that's the nut house, Marco said with satisfaction as we all oh, gazed up this. the hill at the pleasant looking but weirdly quiet two-story structure. I always suspected I'd end up here. He gave me a wink. I had to laugh. See, I was about to make the same joke about him. He beat me to it. Mm-hmm. I like this thing where they're, like, making jokes about each other um, mm-hmm. and just sort of recognizing it as a fun thing that they do together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his jokes are, like, a little bit less annoying. He makes a joke about Rachel wearing leather at one point. Yeah. But, like... That I was a little like... undercut by her genuine enthusiasm for Zena. Exactly. <laughs> kind of, like, he just brushed right by that. Mm-hmm. But it was not a great joke. Yeah. There's one more. There's one more Jake thing that I wanted to highlight. Oh, sure, sorry. Which is when they're in the Bat Cave and they're getting ready to invade the Yerk Pool. Jake's just kind of like, yeah, you know. As soon as I heard Maple Ginger Oatmeal, I should have known this was going to end. Oh, stupidly. Yes. And so Cassie corrects him: instant Maple and Ginger Oatmeal. But then Jake goes on: battles that involve oatmeal are just never going to end up being historic. You know, Gettysburg, no major oatmeal involvement. The Battle of Midway, neither side used oatmeal. Desert Storm, no oatmeal. <laughs> Excuse me, but what is oatmeal? Axe asked. It's a kind of food, Cassie explained. Is it tasty? And Jake continues. Battle of Bunker Hill, no oatmeal used by the British, no oatmeal used by the Americans. D-Day, no mention of oatmeal. Just imagine him with this mentalist of like checklist of battles. And also I like, yeah, I feel like he's been studying. I bet he's been studying exactly. military history. <laughs> he's been studying military history. He's like none of these battles had oatmeal. <laughs> Should have known it was going to be... Or the implication that there were battles that used oatmeal, but they just were really unimportant. <laughs> yes, that's true. Those those battles just weren't historic. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, it's, man. it's really, really delightful. Also in the Batcave, I really enjoyed... Um, Rachel stands up and her head is, is surrounded by soft, warm, fuzzy bats. There was really only one thing to do. Marco, I said, be sure and stretch out. Up on your tiptoes now. Ah, he yelped. A really funny, Rachel. That was so mature. What I should suffer and you shouldn't just because you're short. <laughs> and then they all yeah. giggle. It's delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, thank goodness, as the general implication of these books starts to be, like, things are getting worse. Um, it seems like they're uh, they're enjoying using this uh, humorous banter with each other. Right. I also liked how Marco co-opted her, uh, her line, where they're, like, they're planning to put the oatmeal in the York pool. Good plan, Marco said. Let's, I began. Marco held up one massive leathery paw. No, no, my turn, he said. All right, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because he keeps complaining about how it's always a bad sign. Yeah, it's delightful. I also loved that Marco, at the end, uh, he has purchased, like, hundreds of packets of instant oatmeal, (laughs) and um, his dad is making him get rid of it, so he just brings it all to to We can't bring it to Jake's. It's true. I bet Cassie got some, too. But, I mean, they don't know. They don't know. They don't know, right? 
They should. They just need to they throw need to it destroy out. It. They need to. They, oh Don't they no. have? A, why doesn't Cassie say they have a duty to destroy all of the oatmeal? Right? If they decide, I mean, oh. they sort okay, of. But, I mean, they can't. They can't destroy all oatmeal ever. They're going to keep making it. Maybe they have a duty to destroy the factory. Destroy the factory. I, I mean, feel like so, the Yerks will probably take don't care spoil of that. The Sorry, great. Pretend you didn't hear that. I mean, she says it's the first and only great battle ever to involve oatmeal. So, wow. Surely there cannot be any more. That's the implication we have to take from that. I really enjoyed the scene where Rachel is pretending to be a lawyer, or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, helping a lawyer. He's like, "You're awfully young." Thank you, I said. Actually, I'm 25, but I work out. I eat the right foods, and I always wear sunscreen. She's at most 14. No one's going to believe this. <laughs> and then I leaned against the sink and tried to look like a very youthful 25-year-old with no shoes. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, and then later that scene is just amazing. She's been like, so tell me what's going on. I promise I won't laugh at you. And he's like, yeah, so alien. And she's like, uh-huh, tell me more. And she's like, look, I can't stay much longer, but you have to tell me, how is the year staying alive without Candrona Race? You've been in here for more than three days. And... I cannot possibly describe the way he looked at me then. Hope, dread, amazement, all three. It's just such an amazing, like, she, like, drops this knowledge bomb on him. He's like, Andalite? And she's like, yeah, sure. I wonder if this is the moment when she she appreciates mm. him as a person. Maybe. That, like yeah. maybe this is maybe this is the connection. Yeah. That she's like, oh, the fact just like the fact that there's like a fight, you know, going on, whatever. Like she's mm-hmm. I saw that this guy has hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think still after that she thinks is when she's thinking, maybe I should let him die. So yeah. I'm probably giving Rachel too much credit. <laughs> but she does say I wished I could help the man. Yeah. yeah. So she has different feelings about it. She doesn't exactly, you know, learn empathy wholesale. <laughs> There were a bunch of good axe moments. There were good axe moments. We flipped a coin. Marco won. Then we explained to Axe what it meant to flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> the part where he, um, they accuse him of falling asleep in biology class. <laughs> They're talking about your biology. He says, I didn't fall asleep. I merely let my mind wander. It became very calm and restful and not completely alert. <laughs> Did you snore when you got all calm and restful and not completely <laughs> alert? Which also raises the question, do Andalites snore? We don't have any indication yet that they do. They must. They have noses and presumably lungs. So. Yeah, but they're they're um, because they don't have a mouth. Like their nasal passages are probably differently configured. So I don't know. Hmm. Um, there was this great moment. Yes, this body has no ability to regulate body temperature. Axe observed. I think they're flies at this point. What a strange idea! You humans do many unusual things. Axe, I don't think we're exactly responsible for. Yes, I know. I was attempting to make a joke. A human-style joke. It's a poor joke. It was such a bad joke. He does not understand humor yet. But he does understand Gilligan's Island, and Marco wants to know how he knows. Mm. So Marco did not show him Gilligan's Island. Someone else has been showing Axe Gilligan's Island. Maybe Tobias. One thing, despite what the the thematic like offensiveness or whatever of the end of the book, George Edelman does specifically tell Rachel that he wishes he could be in control anywhere but a mental institution. Yes, that is on. true. Yeah. So, okay. at, the, at the very least, it's not like Rachel picks him up as a bear and throws right. him out <laughs> into the woods. Fair. Fair. Yeah, but, I mean, that's what I was saying. Like, yes, yeah, not, but like, I, he doesn't say, you know, like, absolutely anywhere but here, but mm-hmm. he does say he would prefer not to be there. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is, there's another bit there that's 
just a great hor- horrible morphing description. So before she runs into George, another um, patient comes into the bathroom and sees her. I was about two feet tall, with skin like burnt sugar, monstrously long antennae sprouting from my forehead, human eyes, semi-human legs that bristled with dagger-sharp hairs, blonde hair, and a wide, throbbing, yellowish-brown abdomen when the bathroom door opened. Delightful. <laughs> the morphs in this were real icky. Let's talk about the ending. Mm-hmm. Once okay. again, the Animorphs are captured. Specifically, Axe is captured in his Andalite form. Yeah. And the Yerks say, we're going to wait till Visser 3 gets here to mm-hmm. do anything. And Don't infest him now or anything. Right. And I think, Jenny, you had said this before, it must be professional jealousy on Visser 3's part. He's like, he's, <laughs> you know, he has a standing order that the Yerks need to be stupid in this particular way. Because it doesn't yeah. make any sense that no Yerk would opportunistically infest an Andalite mm-hmm. to then challenge yeah. Visser 3. Except that I they're think... so afraid of him. And as Rachel says, terrified underlings never show initiative. <laughs> the Yerks there may have hated us, but they were terrified of Visser 3. Visser mm-hmm. 3 is such a terrible leader. It really works in their advantage. Mm-hmm. I do think that Visser 3 has complex feelings about infesting the Andalite bandits because we've seen him really fail to do it multiple times. He captured, he's captured Axe multiple times, like in Andalite form, did not infest him in Megamorphs. And I feel like on the one hand, he wants to get rid of the Andalite bandits so that he can be successful in his mission here on Earth, which is very important to him professionally. Mm -hmm. But he also doesn't want to make more Andalite controllers because then he's not special. Right. And he's like, I doubt he's good at self-reflection, so he probably hasn't really admitted this to himself and just, like, is being, like, blustery and delaying every time he, like, has to deal with the Andalite bandits. I just had an amazing thought. So, like, you were saying he doesn't have a lot of time for self-reflection, but he Uh does have... Uh, Alarin in his head all the time. <laughs> presumably telling him stuff. Goading him on, right? <laughs> so like I kind of love this idea that even even yeah. if I mean we saw Alarin be pretty Alarin's still in book fighting eight. the war. But right, so what if he's what if he's sort of pl- doing this long con thing where he's, he's like, like Oh you're gonna infest him? Oh then there'll be two Andalite controllers. Well that's okay. The Council right. of Thirteen will probably still think you're special. Right. And like, he's like, oh no Thankfully Alarin isn't smart enough to figure out the human controller the human animorphs thing. Thank right, goodness. because then Visser Three would realize right away. But yeah. he at least could be playing into Visser Three's paranoia and yeah. fears about things. You know, like yeah. he's like, oh, if I were an Andalite <gasps> bandit, I would totally be blah 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 blah. Oh blah. man, Visser Three would be a, probably a marginally better leader if Alarin weren't, you know, destabilizing him. I love this. Good job, Alarin. What a this hero! Is, this is this is some. I want to read this uh, oh. fan fiction. I'm, I'm really into this. Like. Why, you might justifying Mr. Three's bad decisions from the point of view of Alarin manipulating him. I, I think you should write really this. I think it's your turn. Um, there are some other things about the ending that I thought... So, actually, speaking of Mr. Three, mm-hmm. um, they, they, the Animorphs consider using the oatmeal. Um, first, they're going to feed it to human controllers in the cafeteria. Then they're going to just dump oatmeal into the yerk pool. Yeah. Um, and... In, it was interesting to me that Cassie has that dump oatmeal into the pool idea because again, mm. it's like it's not very Cassie to be suggesting these kind of like aggressive yeah. tactics, but it's also something but it's that saves the host. It spares the yeah. hosts, right? Yeah. Um, but she she tends to make those kinds of connections pretty quickly. Um, but then, so in this standoff, uh, there's a barrel of oatmeal in the yerk pool, and Marco's pointing a dra- dracon beam at it, and they sort of say to Visser Three, "Let us all go, or we're gonna." we're going to uh, contaminate the yerk pool. 
And Visser 3 is like, I don't know, there's like maybe a thousand Yerks in there. Maybe 500 will go crazy if you blow up the barrel. Mm-hmm. And Rachel's like, okay, the Visser's going to be willing to sacrifice yeah, he is. You know, half of the Yerk pool in order to win the battle. So she elephant rushes him, picks him up, and knowing that Andalites can absorb nutrients through their hooves, <laughs> throws Visser 3 into the Yerk pool. <laughs> Which right? I think I referenced that, like, my favorite Andalite hoof moment, it is... Visitor 3 is standing in the yerk pool surrounded by barrels full of instant maple and ginger oatmeal. <laughs> it's so good. And then she says to him, now do you care if we blow up the barrel? Now do you care? And my note here was, don't ask, just do it. <laughs> oh, well, I think it's that they need to, to like, keep it suspended. They need to keep him where he is so they can get out. You know, they, keep, they don't want to do it. Right. And then so what happens is as they're retreating, Visitor 3 starts to morph and then they blow up the barrel or whatever and they manage to get out. But... Why don't the Animorphs consider the benefits or drawbacks of poisoning Visser 3 specifically? Mm. And what do you think about that idea? Oh, man. Yeah, they should. What if they'd just blown up the barrel? Okay, do they reference in this book the thing that we know is true because Elfingor references it in Andalite Chronicles where you can close your hooves? Do they reference it at all? Because presumably it's not perfect, but like... No, they don't talk about it. Maybe, yeah, if it's, like, in a watery medium, he wouldn't be able to, like, totally shut his hooves off from that, but I don't know. Maybe Rachel just doesn't know. Maybe Rachel doesn't know, know. but Visitor 3 would know, and he doesn't call their bluff quickly enough for, like, for, like, he must believe that he's in danger. Or he might just, like, not want to take the risk, like, a little bit could get in. Right. Which I wonder how the Andalite digestive system would deal with the instant oatmeal. Right. How addictive is it? <laughs> but I was thinking, why wouldn't the plan be just to take out Visser 3? Mm. Yeah, would would the Animorphs ever make the decision like, okay, probably Jake, Tobias, and Axe would be lost if we don't have this bargaining chip, but we could take out Visser 3. That doesn't seem like something they would do. Even giving Alaran 60% control of Visser 3 would be a huge change in what is possible, right? Yeah, presumably someone else would be in charge of the invasion then. And honestly, you know, I've been going on this about this thing where they need to kill Visser 3. I'm not sure they should kill Visser 3. He's uniquely incompetent. He's such a terrible leader. That's a really good point. Yeah. Oh, okay, we're going to have to cancel that, that order of buttons. Man. <laughs> I don't know that... Spare Visser 3. <laughs> I don't know that the Animorphs have made that connection yet themselves, but I think mm. you're onto something. Because, mm-hmm. like, there's got... And there's certainly someone... At least either waiting in the wings or the council would send, like, someone is going right. to take over this battle. And we know There's from, no way they'd be as terrible as this. We know that from Visser 3's twin that Visser 3 is so super paranoid about that. And mm-hmm. he's been, like, ruthlessly culling his subordinates of anyone uh-huh. who could be a, a, a threat, i.e. competent. It's, right? Yeah, it's so valuable to them to have Visser 3 in charge. Okay, they, just, they should not kill Visser 3. Huh. Wow, I can't believe I've changed my stance on this. Jeez. This is drastic. But not for the, our, our morals are too precious. No, not because they shouldn't kill in <laughs> For a very blood. pragmatic Because reason. he is the worst leader the Yerks could have. And they need terrible leadership. Uh, fabulous. Yeah. Um, like a competent leader could get rid of the Animorphs. So <laughs> quickly. this planet much mm-hmm. faster. Have competent subordinates who aren't terrified to show initiative. Yeah, if Visser 1 were in charge, this would be a very different series. That would be very interesting, yeah. 
there's another great, I mean, there's a bunch of great Rachel moments at the end of this book, right? So yeah. first it's like her hero moment where she lets her wing get shot off to spare Tobias. Oh, she falls into the air pool. She's like, this is my nightmare, but I'm going to swim under the dock as a bat, morph into mm-hmm. a human, keep my head above water so I don't get infested, turn into an ant, which I swore I would never do again yeah. because I know that ants can't drown, and then <laughs> climb up out of the yerk pool, wait an appropriate amount of time and demorph, steal a gun, and then stun a bunch of people. Yeah. And she even has this amazing moment where um, the, she has, like, an interaction with the controller, and she starts to see that she's given herself away. And mm-hmm. so she stuns him point blank, which makes a huge noise, and then she says, it's an Andalite bandit, and calmly <laughs> walks away. It twice. It's she's amazing. So good. It's amazing. It's such a cool... Like he moved. It's an Andalite. And yeah, she, she gets out of so much by, like... She's, this, this is sort of the vindication of the rash action. Thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's really good at improvising here, right? Like, yeah. We sort of talked about, like, and Jake got to show off a little bit of his, like, recovering from a setback planning uh-huh. strate- strategic skills here. But in terms of, like, tactical moment-to-moment stuff, yes, Rachel, Rachel really, really shines. Very good tactically. She, um, it is interesting and probably significant for her character that, like, she figures out that the Drakenbeam is on stun and keeps it there. Um, she doesn't mm. deliberately kill the people she faces, right? which feels like maybe it's more about like the moral message the books are trying to send than about Rachel, but like the Rachel does, you know, she does choose that. She's not like, we're all hurt and I'm scared and I'm just going to kill everyone I can. Right. It's not right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. She does think about turning into a shark and just killing a bunch of yurks in the air pool, which I think reflects how they, they, they think about the Yerks very differently than they think about the hosts, understandably. Mm-hmm. She probably would have done that if it weren't that, like, oh, then that would then they would kill her, and that's all she would get to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the Yerks, you were saying the Yerks got smarter in a couple of different ways. Oh, they did. I want, that. I feel like we can't get through this podcast without talking about Gleet Biofilters! Gleet Biofilters! <laughs> These things are so annoying. They're the worst! The, the Yerks have stolen Andalite technology that How is somehow a DNA detector and, like, a DNA annihilator, or, like, it's got, it's, it's got some kind of, like, zappy mechanism in it. In it. Uh-huh. But this is so bad it's very for bad. the Animorphs. Mm-hmm. It's, like, basically your DNA needs to be, the signature of your DNA needs to be, like, um, pre-authorized or whatever. Mm-hmm. So any foreign DNA is going to get zapped. Do you think it would detect, like, fleas? Probably. But I feel like the animorphs test this later. I don't remember. But. I don't know. But like, because, I mean, we're talking about morphing mites before. Maybe this is mm-hmm. a case where you need to morph a mite on right. someone's body and then jump but off. They don't even address the fact that on their retreat, they're screwed because they got to go out through a Glee biofilter oh, door if Rachel yeah. if Rachel hadn't come up with the <gasps> let's get buried alive That's and mole so out true. of here. true. Right? They didn't have an escape with They didn't have an escape route. Wow. I mean, maybe oh, you no. can maybe you can run through and it just sets off an alarm and like stuns you or something. Maybe like, she had a dragon beam, maybe she could have shot it. Right, right, right. Well, and it was specific that they had to detect the unauthorized life form. And then there was like a, a little bit of time where the computer tells the controller to shut her eyes, and then they're able to get out. So I wonder if if they were going through quite quickly from that end, mm-hmm. they might be able to kind of go through the chamber with the bio. Yeah, if they just like rushed through. Yeah, because they had time to get out. But they they can't do a stealthy entrance or exit. And right. The okay. other thing I'm wondering though is like, can the DNA sensors? They must be able to read the DNA of someone coming in. Mm-hmm. So couldn't they then? 
store the DNA of the Animorphs passing through and, like, use that data to do more analysis of what they're doing. Like, every time the Animorphs accidentally pass through a Glee biofilter, you at least get the DNA of the animals that they're... Right, but would the DNA of the animals do anything for you? You know which specific animal was acquired, right? Like... Yeah, but they're all, like, animals from the zoo and stuff. Like, it's not going to be... Well, it's helpful. Except for Tobias, which they don't know. But, like, how would they match up a random bird with the DNA sample they have? They'll knowing turn. that it's always the same Andalite, you know, like, I don't know. I, I, don't I just know feel like, I feel like there's some, there's like a, some data science they could be doing. <laughs> yes. Definitely. How many times are they passing through here? But also, it says it destroys all life forms whose DNA is not entered into the computer controls. Mm-hmm. So I thought that it wasn't that the biofilter was reading the foreign DNA, but that the computer had that sort of database. So they would need to acquire the DNA from another means and then enter it into the biofilter. To be able to get But to if you're to. filtering based on DNA, that means you have to be able to read DNA. And if you can read it, you can probably store it. That's good. Um, they aren't necessarily doing that, but they, Ted's right, they should be. Should be. Uh, one question is if... Um, Presumably they could get in by morphing a known controller whose DNA would be, mm-hmm. assuming that the controllers don't have like specially assigned entrances that they're the only ones they're allowed to go through, in mm. which case, even if they morph like Chapman, Tom. they might not, Tom, they might not be able to go through that entrance. Would they also have to morph Tom's Yerk? Is it looking for the combination? Is it looking mm. for both? How does, we haven't heard from Eric, right? But he's masquerading mm. as a controller, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can he get through a Glee biofilter? He's got no bio to fill. Well, <laughs> he has no bio, so he wouldn't set it off. But they wouldn't have a signature. F- mm, that's could, interesting. He, I mean, they're probably smart they, enough. He probably yeah, hacked yeah, yeah. the system. I mean, he could just come up with a fake DNA sample, and then maybe no one notices that when he passes through, nothing happens. Yeah, or they, they've hacked the system and, like, put in false entries. Right. That's, um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, be explored with these biofilters. I hope they come back. They come back. <laughs> Spoilers. We had a lot of 90s references in this. I don't know if we want to yes. dig into other big topics before we get to that. Uh, planet, the planet Everything Hollywood. in the Planet Hollywood scene was a 90s reference. What a show. What a yeah. show. Yeah. Should we talk about who was there? So who was there, Ted? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Lucy Lawless. Lucy Lawless, who is who? Xena. Yes. Mm. Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> Bruce and Demi. Yep. Oh, yeah. Back when they were still together in the 90s. Very sweet. Um, and uh, my favorite was that uh, at one point, they're watching Shaq jam with Bruce Willis and John Goodman. <laughs> Bruce Willis is playing harmonica. <laughs> Very unclear what Shaquille O'Neal or John Goodman might be playing. <laughs> In this jam They're session. They're just jamming. They're dancing. They're just jamming. Yeah. Oh. Um, Naomi Campbell is there. Oh, yeah. This is also where I learned that pores are a thing that could be unattractive. Oh. <laughs> They're like, because Rachel is like, they have such good eyesight that they can just see everything. She's like, I could see Naomi Campbell's pores. And yet she still looked good. And I was like, oh. <laughs> is seeing someone's pores bad? I don't understand. Yeah. Um. I I'm maybe just out of touch, but Planet Hollywood I thought was like a, like a restaurant. What the hell's a Planet I, Hollywood? I think so. I don't even know. Is and it why like one so of these Amazon paying? rainforest cafe things? <laughs> no, I I don't know. Let's look at. I'm on it. Okay, good. Movie memorabilia takes center stage at this tribute to Hollywood restaurant serving American fare. 
Yeah, they're like a hard rock cafe, but but they seem to have. Oh, they're real though. Yeah, that's interesting. They didn't make up, you know. I guess because they weren't saying bad things about Planet Hollywood, they didn't have to make up a fake, you know. But I I didn't realize that Hollywood. There's a Planet Hollywood resort in Vegas. This town really attracts like big names for their uh, public events. Oh, whoa. Okay. It, it was launched in New York City in 1991 with the backing of Hollywood stars Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Demi Moore, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, okay. So, so this it's a makes very sense. specific reference. Okay. Wow. But why is there this outdoor show at a restaurant? <laughs> yeah. I mean, are they just like launching the second one and so they're all there to like do a show to launch it? It's very confusing to me. They were like, let's just start a restaurant with our own memorabilia in it? I mean, apparently. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, it's like, have you been to a Hard Rock Cafe? Actually, I'm not sure I have, but yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, it's like it similar, yeah. right? Yeah, Where it's, it's, they're it's, actually the same. The same restaurant company. Oh, uh, makes really? sense. Because it's like, wow. you know, they just have memorabilia on the walls and terrible American food. There was, there was a Barbie reference. Still relevant. Lawyer Barbie. Yeah. Just like Rachel's mom. I'm not sure there's a lot of other 90s stuff that really, like, packed it into that first first scene. I thought that uh, the Rachel and Jordan scene was very 90s. <laughs> Duh. You, oh, yeah. yeah. Do you want to read Not the one about how your friend Marco is here. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do you want to read Jordan's little... Uh... <laughs> so gross. Oh, actually, Okay, go ahead. So, uh, Rachel is at home, and she's looking for lunch. So she opens the refrigerator and yells because her sister has thrown out the container, the white paper container of leftover Chinese food. And it turns out that the Szechuan shrimp that she had was um, about a week old. And her sister shook her head slowly, pityingly. It was already a week old. Duh. It was too old. (laughs) Duh. It would have made you bark up your kidneys. Duh. Shrimp doesn't exactly stay good forever. Uh, duh. And, oh, by the way, did I mention, duh. <laughs> Boy, I hate it when someone gets the better of me, Rachel thinks. But I could not think of a single really crushing comeback, so I said, I'll let it go this time. <laughs> no, but we have to go on. Jordan rolled her eyes. Thank you, thank you, Queen Rachel. I'm so glad you let me live. That's scary. <laughs> I mean, that's like a funny little joke, but we were kind of talking about, like, yeah. what's going to push Rachel too far. Her little <laughs> sister sees Rachel as, like, making this, like, really uh, threatening her with violence. Yeah. Right? I think it seems like Jordan is not actually scared of Rachel. Oh, no, I know. But it's I know, clear but... that Rachel is, like, kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. Well, she has so many teeth. <laughs> oh, man. Um I hadn't realized, but actually, it's not the... That is not the only, um, duh... Rachel moment, um, as I searched for that word. <laughs> uh, after she dives into the water, she realizes it was a terrible idea. <laughs> and she says, Cassie, Marco, don't do it. No, duh, Marco said. Uh, just because you're a lunatic doesn't mean we are. And then later, um, Rachel says it to herself. Uh, they, She sees them drag Axe away, and she's looking for Jake and Tobias, where would they be keeping the bats? Duh, Rachel. The same place they were dragging Axe. What a duh in this. It's been a long time since I have said that word. You know, yeah, it's really fallen out of favor. Uh-huh. I really liked um, 
Uh, I really like the exchange between uh, Rachel and Tobias. I guess it wasn't an exchange, but, you know, they're they're trying to save the guy. Glide toward the water, Tobias yelled. No, don't flap, you idiots, glide! I forgave Tobias for calling us idiots. <laughs> when it comes to flying, he is the expert, and it was a slightly tense situation. <laughs> I just That's... loved that internal, like, I forgave him. Thanks, Rachel. That's so funny, yeah. Oh, man. Anything else on, on uh, the underground? Probably. Anything else. What's up next? <laughs> the decision. Have you looked it up already? I just did. Oh, yes. okay. Uh, so it's meant to be a Tobias book, but it is instead an Axe book, which, fine. Yeah. Um, it was a really good Tobias book the last time, so fine. I guess we can have an Axe <laughs> book. It's like good enough to carry over for two books yes. worth. Yes. He is morphing into a mosquito, and it is terrible. Oh, my God. The proboscis coming out of his face. I hate it. I hate it a lot. Um, the decision, the, the subtext is, uh, change a little, change a lot, just change. Wow. It's very demanding. It's not very helpful. Um, something that came up in the underground that we had just learned about a couple books ago was the Lyran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to see a reference to that again, because usually when we hear these sort of alien things, it's like... The and Stram in the Mac. Then nothing we happened. heard from. Right. Yeah. So the fact that it was mentioned twice in a row... I'm going to guess that this has something to do with the Lyran. They're going to find a Lyran and be friends with them and get their DNA through the sucking from the mosquito. Oh, cool. Or something. I don't know. I guess you can't And why do they want their DNA? Yeah, I was going to say you can morph it, but you couldn't morph it if you acquired it as a mosquito. Could you you acquire DNA from a sample of blood? I was going to say maybe the mosquito could give the sample to another one and they, I don't know. But yes, yeah, that's what happens. They, they try and morph a Lyran by sucking its blood. So what's the decision? Whether they're going to uh, uh, help the Lyran also fight against the Yerks or not. Why wouldn't they? Well, the Lyrans live in space somewhere uh, else. So they have to like get there. It's a long trip. They're at school. It's like a lot of work. <laughs> Maybe they just want to focus on so Earth for Lyran a little while. So the is trying to get them to come to... What's the planet? The planet is also Lyran, that it's dumb. Lyra, I think. Lyra, did we decide it was Lyra? Okay. I think we did. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the Lyran is like, hey. Come with us to Lyra, abandon this planet. Like, yeah. Okay. And they decide, they have to decide whether to go or not. Mm. And maybe they go for a trip, but then they come back. Because okay. Earth is really what, what they're focused on. That's where it's at. You don't think we're yeah. going to be in, on Lyra for six or seven books? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and I say that with all the firmness with which I said... They never use the time matrix. Full <laughs> there understand. are like 35 books left. They could be in Lyra for like a really long time. Well, and it turns out that only four months have passed or six months have passed since they started this whole adventure. So they could yeah. go to Lyra for a week. <laughs> That's six <laughs> or seven books. And then they spend the whole week as moles digging. Exactly. Wow, that was ridiculous. We didn't even talk about like, was that really the best way into the year pool? It was not. No, it was not. Do you know what was the best way? What? Find a bat cave. <laughs> but the bat cave was underground. They had to get... They, they, you know, humans can't dig, actually. I didn't know if you know that. But, like, but the bats come out of the bat cave. They certainly can dig as efficiently as moles, <laughs> who, in a two-hour period, can go about three feet down. <laughs> There's no way humans could match that. I really thought, and I think I predicted Humans this. also don't make any tools that would help them with that. Go on. Yeah, they couldn't have stolen a back or something. No. I, I think I predicted, but I definitely think that this is what they should have done, is 
if they know the year pool is underground, mm-hmm. go find local caves. Bats live in the caves. Maybe there's a connection, which is what mm-hmm. ends up happening. <laughs> and then they get out with the bats. Like, there is an it's entrance true. to that cave somewhere. Yeah. Then you just have to dig sideways and not down. I feel like it would have been difficult to be sure that, like, there's a local cave that connects to the Yerk Pool. Because you'd think the Yerks like, block up those entrances. I, I but would, but... It would be better than spending an entire week digging as moles. Yeah. This just doesn't seem efficient. Anyway. Uh, but part of the reason they go forward with it... We're just jumping right back into the episode. Sorry. Part of the reason they go forward with it is that Rachel's like, I will not be dictated to by fear. Therefore, I will come out strongly in favor of this, like, plan that is admittedly stupid. Yeah, she's not good with the planning. Yeah. Um, one quick thing on the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's one of the ones the inside, you know, has the cutout for the mosquito, and it's just a mosquito on. Well, you can you see aren't allowed to look at that old man's hand. Have you been looking at these before? No, I didn't realize that the Kindle version had that. <gasps> oh, but this one does, and it's weird and gross. But you don't get the okay. You don't get the text for the inside. Oh, is there a text on the inside? There's text no, 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 like no. The, in the inside of the cover. Okay, no. that's good. Because the text on the inside of the cover is is often, uh, it's like a pretty significant paragraph. Uh, and it tends to spoil stuff from like up to two-thirds of the way through the book. So like, yeah. What are they doing? No, no, this is just the, it's, it's yeah, like yeah. what the cutout would look like. And it's a mosquito on an old guy's hand. Mm. On the planet Lyra. On obviously. the planet Lyra. <laughs> Lyrans have okay, old man. So I want to ask you. I think the the book pattern has been established now that we've seen yes. two X books. Okay. So mm-hmm. like, what's your reaction? I want more Tobias, but Axe is also very funny. So, do you think it's fair that we get half as many no. Tobias and Axe books? I don't. I agree with you. I think that they should swap Axe in for, like, they should rotate through. So actually, yeah. this time around, it should have been you know instead of a Cassie book, we have an Axe book. Okay. And why don't they just rotate in sixes? Or running it in sixes. Also a good point. <laughs> On the one hand, I do like it that by knowing the last number of a book, you can tell whose book it is, but... Right. Jake's one and six. Yeah. yeah. Tobias is always three. X is always eight. But also, why don't we just get more X and Tobias? That's There's no rule that says they have to... At least in the follow. Megamorphs books, we get everybody. That's true. true. And do you know what Megamorphs book is coming up soon? Is it the dinosaur one? It's the dinosaur <gasps> I'm one. I'm so excited. It's after 18. Excellent. It's coming so oh, soon. Oh, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to the dinosaur one. Yeah, It's going to be my favorite, I hope. <laughs> All right, well, not to put too many uh, high expectations on that. First, we're going to read the decision. Yes, good. Should be a good time. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. The idea was hatched at the premiere of Die Hard in 1980. <laughs> this is the wow. best trivia fact I have ever learned in my life. <laughs>